Good evening. The jury in the murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse finishes the second day of deliberations. A right-wing congressman is censured for a murderous depiction and the end of rent relief in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. And two of the three men convicted in the assassination of Malcolm X are set to be cleared today after insisting on their innocence since the 1965 killing of one of the United States' most formidable fighters for civil rights. That's according to their lawyers and Manhattan's top prosecutor. A nearly two-year-long reinvestigation found that authorities withheld evidence favorable to the defense in the trial of Muhammad Aziz, now 83, and the late Khalil Islam. That's according to their lawyers, the Innocence Project, and civil rights lawyer David Shannies. Aziz called the conviction the result of a process that was corrupt to its core, one that's all too familiar even today. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. tweeted that his office would join the men's attorneys in asking a judge tomorrow to turn out the, to toss out the convictions. At age 39, Malcolm X was gunned down as he began a speech in Harlem's Audubon Ballroom on February 21st, 1965. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office publicly acknowledged it was considering reopening the case after Netflix aired the documentary series Who Killed Malcolm X last year. The series explored a theory by scholars that the two men were innocent and that some of the real killers had escaped. And in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the jury sat through a second day of deliberations in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, charged with killing two protesters and wounding a third during demonstrations against the police shooting of Jacob Blake last year. Judge Bruce Schroeder, Bruce Schrader, did not immediately rule on the request, the second mistrial motion from the defense in a week. At issue was a piece of drone video that prosecutors showed to the jury in closing arguments in a bid to undermine Rittenhouse's self-defense claim and portray him as the aggressor. Prosecutors said it showed him pointing his rifle at protesters before the shooting erupted. Rittenhouse, a then 17-year-old former police youth cadet, said he went to Kenosha to protect property from rioters. He shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum, 36, and Anthony Huber, 26, and wounded Gage Kroskrutz, now 28. He could get life in prison if convicted of the most serious charges against him. Meanwhile, in related news, Judge Bruce Schrader opined from the bench outside of earshot of the jury, but with cameras rolling. The judge, who had made many strange statements during the trial, says he'll probably never allow live coverage of a trial again. When I talked about um, problems with the media when this trial started, that's, we were there in part, not, not fully, but in part because of grossly irresponsible handling of what comes out of this trial. I will tell you this, uh, I'm going to think long and hard about uh, live television, a trial again next time. I don't know. I, I, I've always been a firm believer in it because I think the people should be able to see what's going on, but when I see... What's being done is really quite frightening. Frightening, that's the right word for it. When I talked about... And that's uh, George Schrader earlier today. He had a lot more to say as well. Schrader also commented on another unusual event that's gone viral. He made the defendant Rittenhouse choose his own jurors from a tumbler that separated alternates from those who would actually decide Rittenhouse's own fate. There was a black defendant and there were uh, 13 jurors, one of whom was black. And when the um, clerk, the clerk, the government official, drew the name out of the tumbler, it was a black, the black, the only black. 
There was nothing wrong with it. It was all okay. But what do they talk about? Optics nowadays? Is that the word for things? That was a bad optic, I thought. I think people feel better when they have control. So ever since that case, I have, uh, which was, well, ever since that case, I, uh, I've had an almost universal policy of having the defendant do the banks. Well, that had nothing to do with anybody's race or anything like that. And uh, I never had a complaint about it before. In fact, I haven't had a complaint about it here. Um, but uh, some people seem to be dissatisfied with that and uh, people who want to undermine the result of the trial. So that's today's statement on that subject. All of I, Your Honor, is why I do my best to avoid reading anything anybody's writing out about <laughs> this case. In related news, because it's a young person, 17, now 18-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse facing as much as life in prison, it was interesting to read today that after spending nearly six decades behind bars, the Louisiana inmate whose Supreme Court case was instrumental in extending the possibility of freedom to hundreds of people sentenced to life in prison without the opportunity for parole when they were juveniles was freed on parole today. Henry Montgomery, who is 75, was released from prison just hours after the parole board's decision and went to the offices of the Louisiana Parole Project, a nonprofit which is supporting him after his release. There, he was embraced by tearful staff and former juvenile lifers who were freed as a result of the court case that bears Montgomery's name. It feels so wonderful, said Montgomery during an interview with the Associated Press. When asked what he plans to do now that he's out of prison, Montgomery said he wanted to pay his respects to his mother and grandmother and other family members who died when he was still behind bars. Montgomery had been convicted in the 1960s killing of East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Deputy Charles Hurt, who caught him skipping school. Montgomery was 17 at the time. He was initially sentenced to death, but the state Supreme Court threw out the conviction in 1966, saying he didn't get a fair trial. The case was retried. Montgomery convicted again, but this time sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He served decades at the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. At times during the hearing, Montgomery said he was struggling to find words to express himself. I'm really sorry that that I that this happened, Montgomery said. I'm going to have to live with this all my life, the rest of my life. Speaking later, he said, I destroyed my life, they life, and the people that I hurt, referring to his own family and that of the slain deputies. And in another trial in Brunswick, Georgia, the man who fatally shot Ahmed Arbery testified today that Arbery's attacked him, that Arbery attacked him and grappled grabbed his shotgun after he and his father pursued the 25-year-old black man in their Georgia neighborhood. Travis McMichael's testimony came as defense attorneys in the murder trial of the three white men accused of killing Arbery opened their case by building on, on arguments that their clients were lawfully trying to stop burglaries in their neighborhood. Asked by his attorney why he shot Arbery, McMichael responded, he had my gun, he struck me. It was obvious he was attacking me, that if he would have gotten the shotgun from me, then this was a life or death situation, and I'm going to have to stop him from doing this, so I shot. The Reverend Jesse Jackson sat with Arbery's parents in the back row of the courtroom today for the second time this week. Attorneys for the defendants have said Jackson's presence and that of others who had spoken out in support of convictions in the case could unfairly influence the jury. In an interview outside the courthouse, Jackson said that by bringing up the issue of his appearance and that of other black pastors who have supported the Arbery's, the defense attorneys are looking for a diversion. They don't want a trial, he said. They want a mistrial. And in Washington, 
Jacob Chansley, the spear-carrying January 6th rioter who, whose horned fur hat, bare chest, and face painted made him uh, one of the more recognizable figures in the assault on the Capitol, was sentenced today to 41 months in prison. Chansley, who pleaded guilty to a felony charge of obstructing an official proceeding, was among the first rioters to enter the building, is acknowledged using a bullhorn to rile up the mob, offering thanks and a prayer while in the Senate for having the chance to get rid of traitors and scratching out a threatening note to Vice President Mike Pence saying it's only a matter of time justice is coming. Though he isn't accused of violence, prosecutors say Chansley of Arizona was the public face of the Capitol riot. He went into attack into a, the attack with a weapon, ignored repeated police orders to leave the building, and gloated about his actions in the days immediately after the attack. And in more news from Capitol Hill, the House voted today to censure Republican Representative Paul Paul Gosar of Arizona for posting an animated video called an anime that depicted him killing Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with a sword, an extraordinary rebuke that highlighted the political strains testing Washington and the country. The the anime, the little clip, is all over the Internet, and uh, you can hear – uh, there's not much said, but here's some of the sounds of what that anime looked like. It shows videos of immigrants and others trying to cross the border, the, Mex- the border between the southern border between Mexico and the United States, interspersed with footage of Gosar using his sword on uh, on AOC, and at the end on President Biden himself. It also shows his heroes, other conservative members of uh, Congress who have supported Gosar. Here's a clip from that. Calling the video a clear threat to a lawmaker's life, Democrats argued Gosar's conduct would not be tolerated in any other workplace and shouldn't be in Congress. Paul Gosar spoke himself in defense of the video. Last week, my staff posted a video depicting a policy battle regarding amnesty for tens of millions of illegal aliens. This is an enemy that speaks to young voters who are too often overlooked. Even Twitter the left's mouthpiece, did not remove the cartoon, noting it was in the public's interest for it to remain. The cartoon directly contributes to the understanding and the discussion of the real-life battle resulting from this administration's open border policies. This body is considering passage of Mr. Biden's reckless socialist Marxist $4.9 trillion spending bill that provides $100 billion for amnesty to tens of millions of illegal aliens already in this country. This is what the left doesn't want the American people to know. Our country is suffering from the plague of illegal immigration. I don't stop pointing this out, nor will I. But Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said the purpose of the video and the anime was to uh, create the idea that Congress is irrelevant and not important. It is sad. It is a sad day in which a member who leads a political party in the United States of America cannot bring themselves to say that issuing a depiction of murdering a member of Congress is wrong. And instead, 
decides to venture off into a tangent about gas prices and inflation. What is so hard? What is so hard about saying that this is wrong? This is not about me. This is not about Representative Gosar. But this is about what we are willing to accept. That what we say and what we do does not matter so long as we claim a lack of meaning. These depictions are part of a larger trend of misogyny and racial misogyny, racist misogyny. This has results in, in dampening the participation. The question that I pose to this body is will we live up to the promises that we make our children? If you believe that this behavior is acceptable, go ahead. Vote no. But if you believe that this behavior should not be accepted, then vote yes. It's really that simple. Thank you, and I yield back to the chairman. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Matt Gates, a Florida Republican, strong supporter of former President Trump, then stepped up to say what, the, what he thought the real issues were. Anime is fiction to the point of the absurd. It's not really my thing, and it does glorify violence, but often to symbolize conflict, not realistic harm to another person. In the last session week we had... We reviewed Steve Bannon's podcast. Today, we're critiquing Paul Gosar's anime. Next week, we might be indicting the Wiley e. Coyote for an explosive ordinance against the Roadrunner. If you don't like Paul Gosar's tweets, tweet back at him. We know there are plenty of folks in big tech who will amplify your message. And that is Matt Gates. The de Blasio administration today released its annual Right to Counsel progress report for fiscal year 2021, which found that through the citywide implementation of the Right to Counsel program in 2020, 100 percent of tenants with calendared eviction cases had access to legal services and 71 percent of tenants who appeared in housing court had full representation by attorneys. That's nearly double the pre-pandemic rate. 38 percent and an exponential increase over the one percent of tenants who had lawyers in 2013. To date, since 2014, the city has provided legal services to more than half a million New Yorkers, including approximately 100,000 New Yorkers who utilized this program during the COVID-19 pandemic period. To educate New Yorkers about housing instability, raise awareness of right to counsel and promote the availability of these anti-eviction resources for tenants, the city is also launching a public awareness campaign. Today, Vanessa Gibson, city council member, Vanessa Gibson, who is now the uh, Bronx Borough President-elect and one of the people who was most uh, instrumental in getting this law passed, spoke about it today. I've done something transformative in the city of New York, and I'm so proud of this work. Being evicted is a real fear for many Americans and New York families. Many New Yorkers, many families are still unemployed and struggling to make ends meet. The administration's annual Right to Counsel progress report found that through the citywide implementation of Right to Counsel, 100% of tenants with eviction cases had access to legal representation. Attorneys in housing court balancing the scales of justice, leveling the playing field, and giving tenants a real shot at keeping their homes. 
Securing tenants' rights to legal representation in housing court is essential in our fight to prevent mass evictions during this crisis. Councilperson Vanessa Gibson, who's the borough president of the Bronx, elect at this time. But as tenants get help from one hand, it's being taken away with another. This week, New York State closed the Emergency Rental Assistance Program, ERAP, leaving hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers at risk of eviction and homelessness. To date, the program has spent all $2.5 billion allocated to it, providing relief to approximately 80,000 families, while another 100,000 applicants are still pending. According to federal data, nearly 640,000 households in New York State were behind on their rent last month, meaning hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers are still in need despite the rental assistance program's closure. In response, the CEO of the homeless housing organization, WIN, Christine Quinn, said that uh, the COVID pandemic has upended all of our lives, exacerbated some of New York's most pressing problems, including housing affordability. She spoke with WBAI this afternoon. The program is basically the eviction moratorium that then-Governor Cuomo put in place during the beginning and the real thick of the pandemic. And it, it was obvious so many people lost their jobs and had no income that they were all going to get evicted or so many of them, more than the social service system could absorb or support. Now, there's no money left in it. And that's why Governor Hochul has requested close to a billion dollars from the federal government to help with this type of support that New Yorkers need because the pandemic still goes on and because people are still out of work. There's still too many people who post losing their job have ended up in minimum wage jobs. 25% of the mothers at the shelters I run win lost their jobs because of the pandemic. Rents are so high in New York. The lack of affordable housing in the city of New York is so profound. It is beyond what anybody might have predicted a mere five years ago. And basically, Manhattan is out of reach of people, which is terrible to have an entire borough be out of reach. But now big parts of Brooklyn and Queens are also out of reach. That's why it's critical that the governor and the new mayor take real steps to build and create true affordable housing. Affordable housing that's affordable to the homeless families who are living in a wind shelter. We've also called on the mayor to create what we call as a stay-at-home voucher. A stay-at-home voucher would be a two-year voucher that would help people pay their rent until they got back on their feet. And it would cost less, we've done the math, than to have somebody in the shelter for two years. The mayor earlier today was lauding the system they have where lawyers are being now provided to people who are facing eviction. Is that as impactful as the mayor said it was? Free counsel for tenants in housing court is very important, pandemic or not. 
landlords are always represented by counsel and tenants usually are not. That said, we're talking about lawyers who have to take a tenant through court. That's a traumatic process, particularly if you have children. And at the end of it, even with the best lawyers, you could lose your apartment. But it is not the same thing as having a stay-at-home voucher, which will prevent you from having to go to housing court. A tent city that had appeared out of nowhere a few weeks ago at Tompkins Square Park was removed. This is in 1988. In a lot of ways, it's worse. Are we seeing, like, this going to happen? The city taken over by homeless uh, encampments and things like that, putting the police in the position, unenviable position of evicting people and fighting with people in the streets and things like that? We have a homeless crisis in this city. There's no question. Families and single individuals. And for far too long, Mayor de Blasio and Mayor Bloomberg before him attempted to manage homelessness, to manage it off of the cover of the newspaper, when really what the goal of the mayor should be is to end homelessness. So that we're seeing things that we haven't seen for, say, 20 years again is not shocking to me because we have not done anything new, distinct or different. We have not taken this issue on as the crisis that it is. And the great opportunity that Mayor-elect Adams has is to do that, is to commit to end homelessness, not manage it where we move people off the streets and out of shelter into permanent housing. Christine Quinn, she's a homeless advocate. Beyond that, she's president and CEO of WIN, the largest provider of shelter and supportive housing for homeless families in New York City. And an estimated 100,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in one year, a never-before-seen milestone that health officials say is tied to the COVID-19 pandemic and a more dangerous drug supply. Overdose deaths have been rising for more than two decades, accelerated in the past two years, and according to new data posted today, jumped nearly 30 percent in the latest year. President Joe Biden called it a tragic milestone in a statement as administration officials press Congress to devote billions of dollars more to address the problem. Drug overdoses now surpassed deaths from car crashes, guns, and even flu and pneumonia. The total is close to that for diabetes, the nation's number seven cause of death. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has not yet calculated racial and ethnic breakdowns of the overdose victims, but it found the estimated death toll rose in all but four states, Delaware, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and South Dakota, compared with the same period a year earlier. The states with the largest increases were Vermont, West Virginia and Kentucky. And earlier this year, former Governor Andrew Cuomo ended a controversial program that linked COVID-19 shutdowns to zip codes, red zones that covered microclusters of COVID outbreaks. The use of zip codes came under criticism because the zip code boundaries often don't match the organic boundaries of the city's many diverse neighborhoods, each facing a localized outbreak. Today, Mayor Bill de Blasio explained why he went along with Cuomo's idea, even though he says he knew it wouldn't work. City did something, no matter how good or how effective, the state had to do it some different way. So a lot of good work was done down here that got ignored and the state came up with its own system. And we wanted to avoid even further confusion. So that's why we did what we did. We knew that people were 
being told not to talk to us because we couldn't get answers from them. That's how we knew. And that's just wrong. It was a global pandemic. It was wrong that the professionals were not really allowed to talk to the professionals and get the kind of answers that would protect people's health. And that was Mayor de Blasio earlier today. And uh, in a final story, this is our final story, Governor Hochul announced today that anyone 18 or over in high transmission areas can get the COVID-19 booster. Speaking at, from the Delavon Grider Community Center in Buffalo yesterday afternoon to update New Yorkers on the state's pandemic response leaders, she said that boosters are available and are necessary, especially with the holidays looming and the possibility of a outbreak of COVID-19 as people head indoors due to colder weather. Let me talk about boosters because there's been a lot of confusion about this and, and who's eligible for a booster. Our seniors are vulnerable because their vaccine that they had, some of them just a little over a year ago, many of them were vaccinated in December and January, starting to wane. The effect, the efficiency of this is starting to wane. We saw that, we know that. We know that 47% of people 65 and older has had a booster, 47% above 65. That's the population that's going to get sick and end up in the hospital. We have to make sure that they're getting boosters. Let's get those booster numbers up. We're going to continue working with our local health care facilities, make boosters available. This is what the state is committing to do. If our counties need help, we're there for them. I've said this all along. I will be there to make sure that you have the resources you need to have boosters available in any place that seniors gather. I want to see them available at senior centers. And as Governor Hochul, governor, the governor said that 28,555,661 total doses of the vaccine have been administered in New York State, 53,987 just in the last 24 hours. She says 89.1% of New Yorkers 18 and older have gotten at least one jab. 79.8% of New Yorkers 18 and older are fully vaccinated. 71.3% of New Yorkers aged 12 to 17 have gotten at least one dose. And six. 62.9% of New Yorkers aged 12 to 17 are fully vaccinated. She said regarding breakthrough cases in New York, that's the cases of COVID in people who've actually been vaccinated. The governor reported a slight uptick week over week in percentage of breakthrough cases and hospitalization. She said breakthrough cases accounted for 1.2% of new COVID-19 cases in New York over the past seven days and 0.08% of COVID-19 hospitalizations statewide, up from 1.1% and 0.07% and respectively a week ago. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, November 17th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>